Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have back with me evil wizard and tactician Nathaniel Cumberledge. How are you doing, Nathan? Doing great. Been a long time. Glad to be back on the show for another episode. I'm glad to have you back on. It has been too long. Um, And this time, we're going to talk about something quite fun. I'm titling this episode Immortal Warfare, unless I decide to change it half the time when I come up with a title live, or not live, but recording this. Let's pretend it's live that I change it afterwards. But yeah, Immortal Warfare, we're going to talk about um, combat realism or combat verisimilitude, as I learned I was mispronouncing the word uh, for forever before we started recording, in fiction. Uh, But before we begin, I will shill a few things. So first of all, I want to send you all over to wildislelit.com. That's my website where I host a bunch of things. Um, I've actually been posting there somewhat frequently. Uh, I've got some new essays, some new short fiction there, um, a lot of which is over on the audio section as well, as well as my whole novel, Wand Smoke Broken, which is due soon for a uh, redux of the cover. Uh, and then I can start publishing the Tales from the Labyrinth, which I've been advertising but have not been able to put out for quite some time. Also, if you're an author, which you likely are, if you're listening to this podcast and you're looking for an editor who focuses on line editing or thematic depth, you can hire me over at the Wild Isle Style Guide. Also, another also, you can hire me as a ghostwriter. I have a ghostwriting page up. I've been doing this for a little while. I just have not been advertising it. But if you want to have a book written and you don't have the time or the aptitude, you can hire me to do it for you. Do I have anything else I want to send you to? I don't think so. Nathan, do you have anywhere you want to send people before we begin our discussion? Not at this point in time. Just buy his stuff. Uh, please do or just listen to the audiobook for free you don't even have to buy it and then go leave a review tell me what you think uh but without further ado we'll get into it so combat this is something that i think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are probably interested in i imagine i have uh, a skewed male audience and they like to read books with a lot of action or at least violence um as if violence is not action but actually i will say that for the most part, I have been disappointed with most works attempt at renditions of violence, whether that be at a personal one-on-one scale or whether that be at a large scale. And that's not to say they have all done this. I have read some books that do this very, very well. And that's what we'll talk about today. But before we begin, Nathan, I want to know your opinion. When you read books, how well do they actually accomplish um let's say, combat realism or combat verisimilitude? I think it's highly variable. Uh, If the most of the time, if the whole point is trying to depict uh, like realistic violence, it tends to be really good. But uh, most of the time in most fiction, uh, violence is kind of like a a means to an end, uh, a test of characters, and it's usually written by people who don't have a whole lot of personal experience with, like, fighting, or haven't read a lot about people who have experience with fighting, and that's where it tends to uh, run into problems. Now, there's... I think there's, like, a a lot to be said for violence that's just, like, there to make an artistic statement and just be there as a metaphorical thing, as opposed to, like, well-researched combat between professionals or whatever, but... It's we're here to talk about the latter. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, right. Um, I 
I wonder though how much of this is a consequence of the necessity of violence in many stories by people who otherwise would not have it if they didn't need to have it. And then there are those who, you know, are not, uh, we could call them not life deniers, right? Understanding that violence is a part of life and then therefore there's no reason to be any less engaged with it and uh, artistic about it than others. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that when you see someone doing or say representing, I guess is the right word, representing violence well, um, is that as a, a consequence of that person's is it necessarily the consequence of their experience or is it a consequence of interest? Um, and when they don't do it well, is it the matter of the story or is it the matter of the author? Uh, I think it can be a combination of uh, experience and outlook and ha what role they think that sort of stuff plays in life. So I think it's more like an author thing than a story thing. Um, but like I said, it can vary. There are people who like, have uh very like negative outlooks on violence who write it very well uh i believe like cormac mccarthy is an example that's going to come up later who uh general uh, as far as i am aware has a very has a distaste for violence but believes it's a very like uh fundamental part of the human experience and depicts it in a very grisly way not a very detailed way but a, well uh, but a very, like, uh, artfully engaging way, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. Um, you're right to say that Cormac is, is not um, all that detailed. Like, he doesn't get down to the gory bits of it. It's not like, um, you know, George R. R. Martin sometimes... He really, really digs into these small details, um, hits the kind of shock value pretty hard. Uh, whereas, you know, Cormac McCarthy doesn't care if you can even understand his prose, right? It's the um, the dispassionate narrator uh, describing scenes of just brutal murder, sometimes very poetically and sometimes very flatly, which hits just as hard. But we'll get more into uh, our particulars here in a moment. We should break this conversation up uh, into a number of uh, subdivisions, right? Because, you know, how violence presents itself is really going to depend on the uh, the setting and the size of a cast, right? So sometimes violence is done person to person. Sometimes it's done in small groups. And then sometimes we have these really large scale battles. And Within that, we've got the time it takes place in, right? Because the technology really affects how violence is conducted. You know, if this is a Bronze Age story, the level of violence is going to be much more visceral, much more um, contingent upon the capacities of the individuals involved. But if it's a modern story, uh, people have access to things like firearms, but then also a modern legal system. And in science fiction, we've got weapon systems and oversight that we have to speculate about, which sometimes is much greater in the case of weaponry. But then also sometimes the oversight is much less in the case of space travel, where if you're out in the far reaches where the government can't reach you, it's sort of like being out in the Old West. Uh, again, I think we've talked about that before. So, Nate, what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with talking about larger scale battles, skirmishes, or uh, really uh, writing really personal violence? 
I think we should work uh, from personal up because personal tends to be more typical in fiction because people tend to write from the perspective of individual characters. Uh, I think that uh, even if you are writing something about a big event, more than likely you're also writing from the perspective of one person in that event most of the time. So I think it's a good place to start. All right. And rather than jump into the writing bit, we'll focus on works that have already done this either well or poorly. We'll, we'll cover both. And then we'll try and you know jump around in terms of um, settings, whether it's a fantastical setting, a contemporary setting, science fiction setting, historical, that kind of thing. So Nate, can you think of, we'll, we'll start with the, the good, I suppose, your, your favorite one-on-one, -on -one, very personal fight scene that you've read. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I like quite a few, but uh, I think off the top of my head, I really liked the battle between uh, Conan and Escalante and the Scarlet Citadel, because uh, I don't I don't know what it is about it specifically, but like, is it, that the choking match? Uh, no, it's uh, whenever he's pursuing the wizard after the mass battle scene, and the wizard the wizard guys forces are defeated during that one siege and he just rides him down and he's fighting I think, him. Uh, does he have a magic uh, belt? I'm trying to remember which story this is because there's one where he has a magic belt that lets him get past. It's a very, no, I don't think so. It's a very early one. It's the one where at the end the wizard gets decapitated and the body is still moving about and then the other wizard steals his head. But anyway, the thing I I don't know, the thing I like about it is like um the way it deals with the fact that he's fighting a wizard is that in the Conan universe, wizard magic tends to be like a lot uh, more difficult to prepare and execute. So in order to deal with Escalante and his wizardry, like Conan just attacks pretty ravenously and tries to keep him on his toes the whole time in order to prevent him from being able to cast any spells. And it's it's a small detail, but I think it's interesting. That is an what? interesting one. Uh, it reminds me of another fight where he fights a different wizard. I can't remember his name, um, but essentially he's one of like the Oriental esque kind of dudes. And the uh, narrator makes sure to note that like his hypnotism and his magic doesn't really work on Conan because Conan is a Sumerian who grew up in a culture very far and away and different. And even though the magic is real, it requires uh, the perception of its reality by the uh, individual who you're casting on for it to be effective. And so that Conan can basically walk through this dude's illusions and his hypnotism um, and kill him like just outright because of his background. Um, it, it sounds like a bit of a similar deal where the magic in terms of its um, ability to be used in a conflict is constrained by, uh, let's say, personal or setting factors. Yes. Um... Uh, one we talked about before the show, obviously, is uh, the encounter towards the end of Blood Meridian between the kid and the judge. Um, it's a pretty tense scene. Uh, I think, who else is there? I think it's also the, the, the preacher, the religious guy, is also there. And, like, they're trying to uh, avoid this uh, force of nature that is uh, 
the anti uh, the the judge is like an antagonistical force, and they're running around trying to like ambush each other. Yeah, what's really interesting about that fight is that the judge isn't like it's not like they're just going to go out and get insta killed. It's more psychological than anything. Like they're terrified of him. And like the dude is like walking around, I think with a pair of rifles and the, the kid has a revolver. I remember he has to like stop and like scour it to get the fouling out really fast out of like using sand, which I thought was a cool little detail. Um, again, the small details that are relevant to the setting, they seem to come up in these really good, uh, you know, small scale personal fights where things can be slower, I think, because the narrator can take the time to really get down to what is this person doing? But we also talked about the psychological states of these characters, right? So, like, um, Conan has to basically rush up or be oblivious to the magic in order to overcome it. Or the kid in this case, he's being subdued not so much by the pure ferocity, though the judge is dangerous. Um, but I remember reading that fight. It didn't seem like the kid necessarily, if he just went in a gunfight straight out, would lose. I mean, you would th you would suspect he would narratively and psychologically because you've seen the judge, but the judge has not shown himself to be like an like a crack shot, right? Like yeah. when the Indians attack uh, to go to kind of a skirmish level, he defeats them with deception, right? Like he pretends a cannon is loaded in his room and scares the the, uh, the Indians away. He's very much compared. Uh, about, uh, he's compared a lot to the idea of the devil, like yeah, uh, like. If you weren't went to confront him, he'd find some means to lower your guard or undermine your intentions to fight him properly. And once you let your guard down, that's when you'd be defeated. Yeah, so he um, has this he has this magnetism and psychological power over his victims. Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, which fight out of. Um... Musashi kind of does the same thing because like in the novel Musashi actually they don't show you um, a lot of the fights um, and when they do show them to you they're very slow and it's very psychological and a lot of it is uh, waiting and talking about the interiority of the characters and their intentions and how each man is trying to maneuver to get the slight advantage knowing that if they screw up in this particular way they're going to die um before then the final moment comes and you know someone gets like their head cut off in like the middle of the night and it glints the sword glints of the moonlight or whatever um so a common factor that seems to be coming up with all these great one-on-one -on -one fights is that they are actually not so much focused on at least as far as i can tell the action of the fight itself it's not like a one-on-one -on -one, or sorry not one-on-one -on -one, blow for blow for blow battle um am i am i detecting that right yeah not typically yeah, that that is true i think due to that in part especially from a psychological standpoint is whenever uh most people are in a combat situation they aren't like breaking it down in that manner. They're acting on a very instinctual level and muscle memory. So like describing it, especially from their perspective, will get kind of blurry and will focus less on the individual actions and more on the overall feelings and sensations and like broad, broad strategy of the situation, I suppose. Yeah. And from your experience, like I know that you've sparred Nate um, and 
I sparred quite a lot. And what I've noticed, whether it's like with, you know, your hands or just uh, your, your using practice weapons or whatever, uh, particularly if you don't have protective gear on, because wearing protective gear changes the psychology, which changes the fight. And if all you've ever done is practice fighting with protective gear on, um, you're going to go and think of perhaps a fight in a book when you go to write it or read it for that matter as it being the same. They're really not the same. Um, like I'll, I'll ask you this, Nate, like, uh, cause I know we, we trained together. If people don't know, Nate and I are, are friends in real life. Um, and we did some like HEMA training and tell me, Nate, what does it feel like when someone is swinging, um, a, even just a practice sword at you when you don't have any gloves or a helmet on? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you definitely fear the pain and that changes how you move and like getting hit in the hands or like whatever is not very fun. Uh, well, sometimes it is, but also not physically fun sensation. But uh, so like, yeah, the difference between somebody training whenever they have no fear of pain or injury, it, it definitely changes up how you go about it. And obviously the person in your story is definitely terrified of the idea of pain, injury, and death, especially. So, yeah. and, and, like, when you're doing that, you're also, like, falling back on, th um, the more you, like, overthink and over-strategize in the moment, as opposed to as you're approaching this thing, the slower you're gonna react, and the more likely you are you're gonna get whacked. So, like, you just boil it down to, like, things that you've worked on, things that you've seen, and you just kind of try to go through the flow and try not to overthink things. I have a problem with overthinking things in life. So that's a, it's an experience. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to, to actually describe it. So um, I'm, I'm thinking back to the fight scene was like even Musashi or even uh, in all these books, when it's well-written, there is a, there's a time of interiority and that's like right before you're in within measure, within distance, right? So like, but this is particularly true if you've done unarmed fighting, because when you're out of distance, like you have this kind of security, but you know you can't hit the person until you go into the heart of danger, right? You have to get close enough where they can get hit you back or you can get grabbed or something like that. And the you can kind of think about what you want to do there, but right when you get into the, the actions, um, my experience is that there are very few exchanges uh, and they're very fast and you don't think about them at all. Like 0% do you think about them? Or if you do think, then you're the guy who's on the ground pretty fast. Um, was that your experience as well, Nate? Yes. Uh, I, you, that's been my experience in 90% of sparring. <laughs> yeah. And so we it's kind of cool because I didn't really think about it before, but that's exactly the way the best fight scenes I've ever seen written are are written right it's there's there are moments uh where you would have time to think and in those moments it's not even necessarily that the character is thinking but the narrator takes a time that thoughts would be, you know take place in and expounds upon the interiority like you said the strategy and perhaps the the general tactics that that the person might think or want to apply or maybe the things that are at stake the things that are making that person nervous um even if that is like fear of pain um and then when the fight happens bam um it is a flurry you and i, I actually try to have this general practice in my own work so um for those of you who've read uh broken there's a duel between conti and, and an elf and an elf in my 
Wandsworth universe is like a, a, a satyr with like no emotional regulation at all. Uh, they're imagine like LA gangsters with horse legs. Um, <laughs> And uh, and are hyper effeminate, and they they fight with bronze daggers. And anyway, Conti gets in a fight with one of these things, and he thinks, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do fine because I've been you know able to defeat these enemies. Now Conti hasn't been able to defeat these enemies. The truth is, like the spirit of the old king is the person who was able to defeat these enemies before, or like Grant, who's the freaking constable, or and he had help from people who aren't freaking blind. Grant, he's not blind at that point in the story. But the point is, he goes in think he's going to win. And as soon as the fight starts, it ends within, I think, a single paragraph. Um, Conti's actions are changed from from like what he's planning to do, like talking about a single swing, to him just flinging the blade around, like essentially panicking because things immediately didn't go the way he planned. And then his more skilled opponent, it describes a single mo movement essentially that ends the fight and then the fight's over. It's like really fast. It's really short. Um, and I, I tend to do it that way. Um, is that essentially, does that sound right, right about what we're talking about? Yeah. It's, I mean, especially on a personal level. Uh, I think even whenever we start moving up to skirmish level, there becomes a certain part, uh, a certain point uh, where things are about like what your plan is going in versus how you react to things because uh in my limited experience in training in real life stuff relating to modern things um a lot of it comes down to just knowing how to execute plans and react to certain situations and making sure that everybody involved is on the same page because there is very little that you can effectively communicate during, say, a firefight. So, like, when you've got, like, 30 people who are, like, engaging a position, you fall back on, like, you knowing exactly what to do whenever you encounter a situation. And, uh... Yeah, I've heard that with, um, like, police reports and shootings where oftentimes uh, you, you would have thought you only shot a couple times, but you've emptied a magazine and you don't really know what's going on. So you've got like the plan, but then when you hit the ground, you set back on your instincts. And if the plan is not very well instantiated or if something goes terribly wrong, um, chaos ensues. And, you know, I've also heard that's why uh, in like the military, they give orders multiple times, um, not because they, you know, it seems kind of redundant if you're like, move, 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 move. Like, why are they saying it? It's not to be like, rah, rah, you know, this is a spirit chant. It's according to what I've heard, and you could tell me if this is right, they do that because in the heat of the moment, there's a high chance that you're not going to hear it the first two or three or four times. Yes. Uh, this is also, there's a joke phenomenon, especially with people who man machine guns that they need reiterated. And sometimes they use just, they used to use physical commands where they just slap your head to have you turn your weapon sort of thing. <laughs> because like, in the the adrenaline and the noise, it's like you're just putting down fire on a position and you have no idea what's going on in the world around you. <laughs> yeah. So for skirmishes, because um, uh, oh, there's one thing I do I do want to talk about before we move totally into skirmishes, and I think we could use this story as a good segue uh, from one on one to skirmishes is Dune. 
because Dune has both a single, you know, one-on-one um, sci-fi knife fights, but it also has um, like space Muslim ambushes against the Sardaukar. And, um, you know, I think both are fairly well done. Uh, so what to, what to say about Dune and Dune's fights? Because um, Dune's a little bit different, right? Uh, to backtrack a little bit into one-on-one, I'm thinking of the fact that uh, Paul Atreides is trained to fight with a shield. I remember from Jessica's point of view. So we're getting more character interiority, what his mom's worried about, uh, whether he's actually going to come through the fight, whether his training, which would let him succeed at fighting in shielded combat, is going to get him killed against this uh, like young man, uh, Freeman. And the let's say back and forth between them between them where Paul seems to be getting the other upper hand, but then he keeps making little small errors because like I think he has a couple chances to kill the the guy who he steals his wife after he kills him. I can't remember the guy's name, but uh <laughs> I remember that. Um and then I remember when Paul finally goes to meet his wife, the wife walks up to him and does like a full like catwalk turn around. She's like, I am not too old. Um it's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> has nothing to do with the fight. But yeah, what are your thoughts on if you I don't know if you recall that fight in detail, but what Oh, I'm sorry. Uh I would think that the highlighting the distinct the cultural distinction between Fremen and uh Imperial folk is very interesting because of course, uh due to for those who haven't read the book, the Imperials fight uh, a certain kind of way due to the existence of shields which uh, reflect their kind of cu- their culture to a degree also, because it's all about uh, knife fighting. Well, in the setting, shields prevent like ranged combat, but also re- uh, prevents like fast melee combat as well. This is something the movie doesn't communicate very well, the, the most recent one, um, due to the fact that the shields are kind of treated in a wishy-washy manner in there. But in the novel, it's supposed to be that you are trying to slip the knife in using guile and physical deceit while the fremen are like typically don't use shields so they're more about like traditional like combat between individuals so it's whenever he's uh paul is facing yeah i also forget the guy's name i'm trying to remember it the whole time but whenever paul is facing the fremen uh, he's at a kind of disadvantage because he's used to this different way of fighting. And this guy is just fighting on a more primal and visceral kind of level. Yeah, and if I remember right, they don't say exactly what they're doing. They talk about them moving closer. and, and we, we get the focus in when Paul is like has an opportunity to kill him and doesn't because he if he was fighting a guy with a shield... If he rushed, the shield would block his. Uh, is it a is it a Kindle? Uh, I can't remember what kind of weapon uh, they use. I know they they talk about it specific. Uh, it just, I think it's like essentially something like a kyber knife, uh, as the British would call it, uh, some yeah. Afghan weapon that for some reason the Imperials fight with. <laughs> because uh, Frank Herbert was really into exoticism, Orientalism, and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. So he likes the near and far eastern mishmash. Yeah, so so we see not just interiority, though we also do see that. We see um, there's actually time during one-on-one fights to give a little bit about 
the setting and a little bit about character um, in there, right? Again, the focus isn't on the exact blow that would be given, um, but the significance of the way that those blows are going about or the opportunities missed. Um, it's I, I've often heard it said like when it's relevant to the resolution of the conflict, then something specific gets mentioned, but otherwise we're focusing on something else somewhere else. So let's go on to skirmishes. I don't know if you know of it offhand any Dune skirmishes that uh, were pretty good, but if not, we can move on to other particular examples. There's, I, I don't remember off the top of my head anything that stands out. So... Uh, well, I'll talk about when one. It comes to specifically Dune, but you can talk yeah. to one that stood out to you. Yes, um, I, I can't remember any from Dune. I'll try to pick a sci-fi scrubber shop that I, I can remember. Uh, jumping back to Masashi, because actually this is something else to note to note in fiction. Um, now, Masashi is a essentially historical Japanese novel, um, and most of the fights that Masashi's in are not one-on-one -on -one fights. Even though Masashi himself was very, very famous for getting into duels, he fought in a lot of other fights, mostly because he killed some dude and then all that dude's clan got really upset or the martial arts school where that guy practiced got really upset and then they're out to kill him. And then he just like kind of keeps doing that. Uh, it's like kind of shocking that the dude didn't get murdered in, in his sleep, but I guess that's also why he didn't bathe. Um, but the way that the book handles the skirmishes actually is somewhat realistic um, this is, I guess, sort of like a skirmish where it's Musashi versus multiple opponents. Uh, you might hear the legends and say, oh, well, Musashi was really great. He could take on multiple opponents. Well, guess what? In this novel, no, he doesn't most of the time. Like most of the time, he like has to like run away. <laughs> or like if he knows that he's going to get jumped, which is every, almost every fight he goes into, he, like, he either goes in and he's like, okay, I'm going to die because I'm going to go up there and there's going to be like 10 dudes and I can't kill all 10 of these dudes. And then he's like a freaking samurai. So he's like, okay, I guess I got to go in here. And either Takuan shows up to save him or on the way there, he figures out some other way or, or he comes in with a, like you mentioned, a plan, right? Okay, there are multiple opponents. I can't fight them all. How is it that I'm going to resolve this? Like, what is it that I want to do? Which direction do I need to approach them that they don't expect? Um, how is it that I... I'm going to get the guy who actually is leading them all like away from them. And then I could take that guy out uh, or like, how do it, how is it they avoid them entirely? That type of idea. Um, so I've noticed that it, with skirmishes, but for Musashi, that's how those are most often handled. It's not, you know, it's not the fight. It's, the plan coming into the fight. Do you have any other skirmishes in fiction that you particularly uh, like? Okay, yes. Uh, there's going to be... First, I want to talk about a thing I think is an important principle when writing larger-scale engagement skirmish to skirmish level up. It's that uh, a lot of people tend to make uh, the, like, the fight geography very confusing. And what I mean by the fight geography is a sense of what's what and who's involved and where everybody's at. And I think that's one thing that is very worth uh, addressing and keeping people mindful of, especially in action-oriented stories, is uh, one thing that I've 
Uh, what was I going to mention? Oh yeah, Star Trek 2 I specifically wanted to mention. It's a space battle, but uh, it's between like ships that we understand the capability of. There's only like two of them, and uh, we get a feel for what their advantages and disadvantages are, and it's it's more impactful than if you were like I don't know the one doing Star Wars space battles as a comparison with like loads of stuff going on. You don't really get a feel for like what everything is and what their capabilities are unless you read like expanded universe material, but. I think, like, whenever you're doing, like, large-scale combat, you should really, like, hone in on, like, the break it up into pieces in your mind of what everything is doing and stuff like that. And, um... So, Star Trek II was a good example of that. Another good example of this is uh, the mass battle scenes that tend to happen in Tom Clancy novels. Tom Clancy is, of course, the spy, techno-thriller, military writer guy that's pretty famous. People make video used to make video games after his stuff, and he's dead, and people use his name for stupid shit now. But uh, <laughs> he tends to, like, break up the battle into different perspectives of the people and exactly what their job is and role in the fight. So, like, he'll... Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, Red Storm Rising has a depiction of, like, the... Oh no, it's not Red Storm Rising, it's Some of All Fears. Sorry, I mix these things up sometimes, I've read a lot of his stuff. Uh, there's this uh, there's this fight due to an, a false flag atomic bombing of an American city where it's during the Cold War, so you get glimpses of the earliest skirmishes on in West and East Germany between NATO and War Pack forces, and they kind of break it down into a bunch of different perspectives, like the guys in the tanks, what they're doing the guys who are working the Air Force and stuff, and you've got all this all this chaos going on, but you get to jump between a lot of different perspectives, and you know generally every all the big blobs' roles in things. It's like, think of these larger fights in components. And I think that's a worthwhile thing to do, personally. Yeah, particularly if we're moving up to the battle level, like that reminds me of Hour of the Dragon, where uh, particularly the big end of battle, because there's a couple big, set pieces in that story um, which I've heard described as like a novel I think it's more like a novella length it is long but um, yeah Hour of the Dragon there is a number of different kinds of forces from different geographical places and they're treated almost like characters right so you have each group each people's each set of units is characterized and then then you could treat it like a smaller scale skirmish scene um, and I notice it's it's essentially like a plan unraveling. You get to see the enemy plan, and then you get to see, you don't know Conan's whole plan at that point, but you get to see it un, unravel one bit at a time because we can, uh, let's say, jump from like essentially two different groups of characters. So you have like essentially the protagonist team units and then enemy units, and the enemy units are being chased into a valley where they're they encounter an ambush by the mountain dwellers who have been posted up there uh, for like days waiting for them. And then, you know, things like that. Um, I think that's a really good way to handle the, the battles, the globuling, globuling, I guess we could say. Um, 
or to yeah, or even to focus down on individuals within those subunits um, to see what's going on at a, a micro level. Now yeah, we talk. One thing oh, go ahead, go ahead. How, yeah, I was going to say that's one thing Howard really excels at is trying uh, is like trying to highlight cultural differences between these multiple combatants, and I think that's a thing that is uh, very interestingly unique to ancient warfare and like bronze and early Iron Age stuff is the idea of, like, empires, especially, like, Rome and stuff, gathering all these different fighters from all these different countries as mercenaries, shoving them into an army and having them fight it out with another, like, a distant empire that's doing the same thing. And I think that's really interesting and a thing worth exploring in fantasy fiction. Uh, I think it's cool when people do that. Yeah, I agree. Here's kind of the opposite technique, and I, but I do think this is legitimate. Um, so if you read A Song of Ice and Fire, almost never is a large-scale battle described in those books. Like, I'm really thinking about it. They talk about them happening, but they, when there is an actual battle, we don't get any details except for the details surrounding, You talk, we talked about, like, globules, but it's, it's just not even globules of characters. It's, like, single characters. Single characters are doing things. And then if, if it's not that, then the battle is described after the fact and by the usually by the characters not by the narrator and i think uh, tell me what you think about this because i think a lot of people critique a song of ice and fire for this uh, a lot of people don't like it like it however I... I like it a lot i think it has it's a huge it reminds me of like you talk to a real war veteran and they're telling you like they're telling you stories about things that are happening uh, or that happened, I should say, there is a certain feel to it. I thought I thought it was rather effective to do it that way. What do you think? I think that's absolutely a viable way to do it, especially if you don't want to get into the nitty-gritty details of how certain people did things or fought in certain ways. Uh, one uh, Another example, you mentioned war veteran stuff. Uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried is... Uh, a Vietnam War story collection about his own experiences and experiences he heard of. But, like, there's very little, like, visceral descriptions of combat in it. Uh, it's mostly just, like, the ex the feeling and experience of combat relayed af before or after the fact. Uh, even, like, him trying to describe his own, the, his own act of killing another person, you never get to hear about the act itself. He'll describe the lead-up to it, and he'll describe the aftermath. So I think that, despite the criticism, and I understand the desire in fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction to, like, have that stuff, to be able to, you know, understand the visceral, the mechanical and stuff, but I understand on an, a character and an emotional level, sometimes it's really interesting to explore, like, just hearing secondhand about stuff. And it adds a mystique to things, I think. And I, it can be it can be effective. That's certainly viable. Yeah, it reminds me of the opening talking about Masashi again. The novel opens immediately after the battle at Sekigahara, and so it's just this huge field of corpses, and like Musashi and Matahachi are just laying there. Like, are we dead? Like, how did we survive? Um, but you get the feeling of the immensity of the battle um, because of the aftershock, not because it was describe you know in detail uh, i never read any of the lord of the rings books i want to like really badly um 
do they describe i assume actually should ask nate i i think you have actually read lord of the rings have you yes um, okay well did they describe battles in there yeah well to a degree uh another uh, he's similar to um song of ice and fire uh it's a bit of a middle ground it's a very like it's described in much the way that like ancient literature tended to describe some battles, especially like uh, Viking sagas, where it's like not really in depth, but it like focuses on individual highlights and just the vague nature of what forces are involved, and like just describing certain. It, it's not really like tactical or strategic in the way some other stories are, in the way even, like, uh, the Conan battles are. It's... It's in no way, like... Uh, I'm trying to articulate it in a good way, but... It reminds me of Tolstoy's War and Peace. So there's a part where, I can't remember the character's name, he's... Um, they're in an engagement in Napoleon's forces. He's on the Russian side. And I think this is his first engagement. And they like essentially what we have is a general description of like artillery going off and like people are dying and like people are riding around uh, essentially doing what we would in modern day called fussing where it's like you're acting like you're doing something to contribute and you kind of think that you are but really you're just doing something to make sure you're doing something sort of like how uh, you mentioned machine gunners I've I've heard that oftentimes machine gunners just shoot even like when there's no, it's not useful just because you've got this giant gun and you want to be like you want to see yourself and you want other people to see you like firing this gun off um yeah it, that's that's what that reminds me of is this kind of vague overview and like showing the chaos of war yeah um i was uh reading a long time ago i was reading on killing uh the psychology it's like a book about the psychology of the act of killing by some military individual in which he tries to break down who the ideal combatants are. And he came to the conclusion that 90% of people just do fussy stuff. And most of the actual fighting of any given conflict come down to the 10% of people who are out doing things and trying to motivate people to do other things to support them doing things. <laughs> and, uh, one element of the the whole spraying your machine gun thing is that uh, th that plays into that psychology in which as long as there are bullets flying in your direction, it is very unmotivating for people to do things <laughs> or to advance. So just like, even if you aren't particularly hitting anything, sometimes shooting in the direction of the target is useful. So yeah, uh, that's, an that's another factor to consider in writing. It's like... Most people in most fights are actually kind of useless and helpless. <laughs> it's like, at yeah. best, they can ensure their own survival by doing things, but doing things in a smart way as to avoid confrontation. And yeah, to... I think I heard that about uh, ancient Greek warfare, where um, actually very few people died because I think they had bronze armor at that point, and like their weapons early on we're not really good enough to get past their armor and their shields so mostly it was a couple guys maybe died and then the whole line broke and then like that was it which is would also explain why they were so gung-ho about getting into war all the time they also loved fighting till exhaustion 
especially when it was between themselves. So you'd get a fa- a bunch of phalanxes together, and then they'd cla- uh, they'd clash in a valley somewhere, and then they'd get all get exhausted and retreat, sort of thing. But it, and but there were also examples where they would just kill like a f- two phalanxes would engage, kill each other to a man, and then the Persians would make fun of that, and I'm like this psychotic fight. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it ended up being really effective in the defensive war against Persian conquest. Yeah, because uh, I thought... they were able to stand like rocks compared to like Persian uh, slave troops just dashing themselves on these formations. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be fighting for the Persians. Uh, that would suck. Um, a, a thought came to me, uh, another example, um, The Warriors. Now, people have probably seen the film, and it's a very good film. I actually like it more than I like the book. Um, but in terms of this would kind of bring us back down to the level of skirmish, um, The Warriors is a good example because I, I'm trying to think of how many actual real fights they get into in the book. Um, and I can't really remember that many. I can remember they gang rape some random girl um at some point uh but i think for the most part in the novel it's this tension about getting into a fight and um it usually never happening and then like people having to run away suddenly usually when the cops show up because you're being overwhelmed all of a sudden um so so again we we let's see if we can summarize what works well on the personal basis, the skirmish basis, and the battle, because actually they do seem to be quite distinct. Um, and tell me, tell me, actually, Nate, do you want to take one of those first? Uh, if we had to summarize, like, okay, if you're going to write a good battle or, or a good skirmish uh, or a good one-on-one fight, um, pick one of those. And how, what would you say is the things that you should focus on? On the individual level, you should focus on the visceral nature of the fight rather than the nitty gritty details most of the time and blow for blows uh focus on the characters who they are and like the the idea of how they're fighting over how like they're actually fighting uh because like from their perspective it's kind of like blurring together most of the time anyway and uh I, there are other ways to do that, but I think generally that is the best way to capture how most people experience violence. Yeah, I'll take skirmishing then. So if you're skir- if you're writing a scene of like it's not quite a big battle set you know set piece battle, but you've got multiple combatants, um, it seems to me that the best thing to do is actually to focus on the planning ahead of time if there is any um, how those plans are going wrong. Um, it's more about the perception of the characters and oftentimes the actual blow for blow fight and the fights don't really it's similar in that way to the one-on-one but even more so i would say like the the blow for blow matters even less it really matters uh, how people are reacting to what's going on around them emotionally and um there's very there's a lot of gross motor action uh what i mean by that isn't like of the characters but of like of the of the groups and of the units. Uh, it's very sweeping. It's sort of like how you described um, the battle, the big battle set pieces in uh, Lord of the Rings or what I read in um, War and Peace. 
it's it's kind of general, it's kind of vague because it's not about really the the specifics. It seems to me to be more about the uh, the planning beforehand, the ideas that people have. Um, because once a skirmish starts, when you're in that, when you're in one of the gall, because a skirmish is like one of the globules, the communication becomes so difficult that you you have chaos going on. And uh, Nate, you uh, do you want to cover the battles? Yeah. Um, in terms of like uh, large scale conflict, um, I would understand all the pieces that go into your large scale battle. This is a I think this is the like level that benefits most from like heavy research and like clearly communicating how everything works. Uh but understanding all the parts, what makes those parts distinct and where they're at relative to the other ones and how they're engaging with the enemy. Um both uh the examples we use were like the mass battles in Conan, the the uh I use the mass battles and the Tom Clancy stuff typically is where, you know, every, all the factors involved, you know, what makes all these pieces distinct. And the interesting thing is how all these pieces mash up and interact. Uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, for, for understanding a lot of this stuff, I think a really good avenue is exploring like historical tabletop wargaming. Uh, especially if you're into things like medievals and ancients, just like understand, like if you're writing fantasy, even just understanding how people actually historically fought on the unit level uh, is very useful. And then you can consider how to throw in like magic elements and see how this would change this up. Because the reality is like in most settings where magic gets pretty ubiquitous, it's a match. It's a massive game changer. And I'm surprised more people don't address this in fantasy fiction where it tends to just stay medieval combat but also there's like a dude throwing fireball artillery <laughs> and I'm like no yeah. that would that would be a that would be a massive game changer that would fundamentally change probably how we engage in combat just suddenly yeah. having like mobile human artillery <laughs> i think it's a good uh segue to shift into critiques because boy do i have them um I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned, I can't remember. It's too been too long. So it's been an hour now um, at the beginning of this, that there are some stories that don't handle this very well. Yes, we did talk about it. Um, and I have noticed that this comes from, I think, tabletop games and video games. Why do I think that? Well, you mentioned magic not being very consequential. It was really consequential in Conan. Out of the dragon, like a cliff being made to fall down because your wizard is able to use his magic, or him, for him to be able to like make the river rise and rush so they couldn't cross it. I think he did that, and like there's even little things. One sorcerer doing very minor things completely swayed an entire battle in Conan. So that was represented really well. Now, if we're talking about a game where I, it's like, oh, yeah, you could totally play a melee class or you could play like uh, a dude using a bow or you could play a wizard. Whether that's a tabletop game or not, if we want those other elements to be options, we kind of have to pretend that the fact that you could use magic is particularly in the way that magic is represented in these settings is viable. Right. Like um, the only setting I think that gets around this is probably star wars where the only people not 
shooting blasters like the Jedi. They basically have uh, other magic abilities that have to be used to compensate so that they're still relevant, right? Because you can think of the funny, funnily enough, you can think of the the Jedi in that setting as being like the dude, like the traditional soldiers, whereas everyone with a blaster is really the person, like you know, who has the the piece of technology that changes combat. Do you think, Nate, that the the fact that games are typically balanced to allow for a multitude of options of play um, has contaminated, let's say, fiction in terms of either magic or technology uh, changing the way, let's start with battles, the way battles play out. I definitely think that uh, the way games uh, portray magic especially as time went on and video games especially as opposed to dungeons and dragons because dungeons and Dra early dungeons and dragons tried to emulate more the magic of like early pulp fantasy which as you said like conan uh and elric and stuff like that tended to have magic be very consequential to the fight but like as video games got involved and it was in a, in a video game environment it's hard to think of creative uses for spells so the so eventually everything became healing magic or a blaster spell like everything like you're essentially turning your hand or staff into a gun. So I think that has had a negative effect on fiction where wizards have become less interesting over time gradually as we've been influenced by video games in particular. Um because like one of two things is going to happen uh whenever you've got magic in a in a setting. Most of the time either it's not really effective enough in combat and should just be like a support role or magic should is so powerful and or ubiquitous that it should really shake up and fundamentally change the outlook on combat that your setting has. And there's not a whole lot of middle ground to that. <laughs> no, it, and uh, this, I don't know if this is proper, but I'll mention it now. Um, so in the, Harry Potter books, uh, I think it's the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban. When I read that back when I was in high school, which is kind of late to be reading it, but that's when I read it. Um, I remember on the Muggle News, Sirius Black is um, like said to be a criminal escape from a max security prison with a gun um, because he's got like a magic wand. That's partly where I got the idea for Death Wands, by the way, for the Wand Smoke series. But it occurred to me then that if any of these Death Eaters just had firearms, they would be way, way more dangerous than people ha <laughs> who have to say Avada Kedavra and really mean it, and then only if they're good enough to cast a spell, and then like to hit you with this slow-moving like light projectile that can apparently be avoided or like wandered away. Like I don't know of any of the wizard spells in Harry Potter that are faster than bullets. Um, and so, like, you know, you can keep your magic wand and then also have a gun, and then you would be way more yeah. effective. And and then I think of, uh, I've seen recently the Deathly Hallows where they have that big battle scene at the castle. And it's, I just think, yeah, you know, if a bunch of you had guns, you would have just decimated Hogwarts. Or the other way around, if Hogwarts, if they are all armed with just, like, I don't know, like, single stack, tiny little concealed carry things, like they would be way better off um so yeah. yeah magic is 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 handled not the greatest all of the time particularly in large-scale battles um and yeah video games seem to be a huge culprit with that 
Yeah, um, don't turn your ma- yeah, don't turn your magic into a gun. And this is especially a pitfall in urban fantasy, where uh, there are actual guns typically. Uh, one go- one series that handles this pretty well is Monster Hunter International, because a lot of the Monster Hunters just have a lot of guns and guns that they modify with like different things to specifically fight certain opponents, like silver bullet assault rifles to fight werewolves and stuff. You know that kind of stuff. So yeah. While we're on battles and magic and not not very good, uh, I haven't read through the whole book, so you know, grain of salt. But I read through the first two books, and then um, I've read a scene out of a more recent um, Dresden Files book. Uh, it's one where he is going to war, and he has some mantle or whatever that lets him feel the deaths of all the people involved. It came off really flat. Um, so, you know, you've got the protagonist. Uh, Harry Dresden. This is perhaps what you shouldn't do for a large-scale battle scene. You've got Harry Dresden, and you've got all of the allies that he's gathered together over the course of this book, and I think the previous book where he was gathering allies, and then characters from other books. I think it's supposed to be this really dramatic scene where he's experiencing these people that he's met die, and he can like he knows when each and every one of them does during the fight. Uh, but it comes off really cheaply and flatly with no emotional impact in the same way that if you see like a number like a million people died it doesn't affect you versus if you see like a single person like then that affects you at a large scale um now perhaps this is getting away from magic but i wanted to talk about battles i think what you don't want to do is what um jim butcher tried to do in that novel which is to give you don't want to give the perspective character this omniscient view where he becomes aware of the of the scale of the tragedy beyond what would be really proper to him um i think i can think of it this way too um if you have a space battle right uh i can think of a particular space battle Uh, i won't mention names but it's by uh, a indie author um, and I can't wait for this book to release. But there's tension in the fact that there's one person aboard a different vessel that somebody else, uh, another protagonist, cares about. And if that ship were to blow up, obviously you'd have thousands of people or hundreds or however many people are manning that other ship to die. But it's the fact that you've got the one person, the one, that's important. It's not like, oh, I am given either scientific or magical means of knowing the scale of the tragedy. Cause I think that downplays. It. So, uh, you know, what do you think of that? My, my, uh, proposition is that when you're writing a large scale battle, don't, don't try to filter the scale of the battle through that one individual. Um, at least I haven't seen it done well, but I also have not read Ender's game. And if that makes me feel like that's Ender's game, I don't know. Um, it's been a long time since I read Ender's Game, so I can't comment on it. This that was like a middle school thing for me. But uh, I will say that I largely agree with this. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I, it's a controversial take. But 40k fiction doesn't do well. Like Warhammer 40k fiction doesn't do it for me. Uh, the one big problem I have with that is just like in order to be like edgy and grim, they have arbitrarily large scale battles with arbitrary numbers of like amounts of death and destruction. And it's just like, but rarely does any, but rarely do we ever get to know or understand like the actual people fighting 
and plus, like, just due to the like the setting and the cultural background, a lot of the uh, of a lot of those people, it's like a lot of them either a just live for war or b are just expect or like people with miserable lives that are just expected to be expendable, and uh, like I know this is a really popular property and stuff, but I just like from a character perspective, I just I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think the same rules apply to skirmishes? Because I'm trying to think of um, smaller scale fights and conflicts that I've, I've read that have not struck me very well. And they seem to have the same problems as larger scale ones that, that don't work, um, where they essentially try to, they, they try to use the numbers of tragedy as a uh, as a multiplier when really it's like a divider because uh, i just i just stopped caring so much yeah anytime you want to linger on any of that stuff you have to ha put a face on it you have to make it so that we feel invested in whatever group of people so like like the one uh indie author whose work we won't name uh it's like he like there's this idea of the the other ship exploding and there's a face to that tragedy. We know that that is a real thing because it is a real thing to one other person. It's like this one person connected to this one person make like puts a face to the tragedy of the thing. So like having perspective characters of larger like constructs in your conflicts and the narrative of your conflict or whatever, I think adds a lot. I think like focusing on individuals, even in large scale conflicts, helps a lot. Which is another reason why I pointed to the idea of uh, focus focusing on things as bits rather than things as a chaotic mass. Um, yeah. Oh, a good example of a critique came up. So, um, bring up Harry Potter again, right? If I remember right, a lot of the times in the final books when characters die, I didn't really care. Like, it hit really flatly. Uh, I think they they do, like, a kind of death review um, right after the final battle. And it was, like, the worst way to present character deaths ever because it felt like a list. I think, like, uh, the characters are, like, walking through the, you know, the dead. as I think before before Harry goes and like confronts his inevitable death and he sees, I think Lupin and one of the two twins is dead. I think Tonks is also dead. Um, there's a couple other characters, uh, but it, you know, when you, it, it does not hit as hard as opposed to, let's say, let's, let's use the same series because I actually, um, thought they did a little bit better when they, I think it was Order of the Phoenix, which the, this fight in the books is much, much better than it is in the film. Uh, the middle, like the, the films for the Harry Potter series um, get kind of bad, particularly because they get lazy with the spells. Um, this might be good for one-on-one -on -one fights too. We can mention this with magic. You mentioned creativity. So in the books, they don't shoot like lightning beams or laser beams at each other and like have the classic like two beams pushing each other with the wands. It doesn't happen. Um, they basically, will, someone will cast a spell and then someone else will turn that spell into another spell and then like rinse, repeat that. Or if the wizards aren't that good, then it, 
it's more like they're using their environment to try and like cast spells on the different things available. Um, and if you get caught off guard, you're just basically done. There's not like a, again, not, there's not like this lightning beam thing uh, back and forth. But in terms of this one that's good from Order of the Phoenix, I think it's when Sirius Black is uh, killed. I believe he gets, I know in the movie he gets hit with a killing curse or whatever, but I think in the book that's not the case. There's a gate that like will steal your soul. I think he gets knocked into it and it happens suddenly and no one else is dying. And this is the thing, like there's fighting going on. We're going from character to character. So it kind of, it keeps the scrimmage relevant by focusing in on specific individuals rather than trying to um, describe the whole thing. Uh, so it kind of does the globule method, but with at the individual level. And then it gets to this moment where uh, you've got one of the protagonists and he seems to be winning and then there's a reversal of fate. And then suddenly like death, like when you weren't expecting it, death. And that that works really well in terms of um, being both surprising, but also more emotionally potent. Because again, the skirmish wasn't focused on the numbers. It was focused on, here's this specific individual and, and who we're now taking away from you. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a very good approach also. And a very good like contrast between how something can be good and bad in the same series. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, it's, you know, I think sometimes we get too, too much all one way or the other, you know, you're a fan of a thing or you hate the thing. Um, now, we're going to talk, I want to critique one on one fights, um, because this is actually where I see, I see these the most often, like you said, they're going to be the most ubiquitous, because we're following particular characters, protagonists, or a couple protagonists. So the interpersonal conflicts are going to be most common. And uh, what I will critique um, and as has kind of been done to death, but it's 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 a really good example. Is um, Shadow of the Conqueror by Shad Brooks? Uh, again, this has uh, I, I mentioned this every time I bring his book up. This has nothing to do with the AI thing. I actually am sympathetic uh, to Shad on that front, um, and I like Shad. Uh, I also think Shad is autistic, and the and his uh, problems with his fight scenes are one of the ways that we see that. Um, and it's because, at least for the initial ones, he stops doing this later on and makes a different mistake. But he, in the first couple of fights, describes like literal blow for blow movements of the fight. And that sounds like a good idea if you have never read fights in fiction and have only seen them rendered on a screen, either for video or video games. Uh, Nate, what has your experience been when you see a fight rendered like literal blow for blow? You should never make anything involving combat feel slow in your text unless it's something like very like stealthy or very deliberate, I think would be the exceptions. But like if you if you're have this frantic sword fight and you're describing down to every last detail, literally every movement and stroke your audience is most likely going to not engage with it. It's going to, like, when people get to the fight scene in a story, generally they're looking for, like, the cocktail of, like, emotions and interesting snippets. Most people, anyway. So you're going to, like, 
fall into this thing where you somehow make it boring and you never want to make the exciting like conflict between two of your major characters boring at all. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it I, to me it comes down to like d- don't be hyper literal. Um cuz I don't even think the problem I'm thinking about it, right? I don't even think the problem is that it is blow for blow. I think the problem is that it's discursion. It's a, and like, and he got into this stance and from this angle cut this way, which was parried in this way. And then the guy stepped this way out of the way. And then like that type of thing. It's like, it's just everything grinds to a halt. But I think you could get away with something similar to that if you used the right kind of figurative language to describe the experience of receiving and giving the blows and the general feeling of the the movement, right? Um, so if someone like swings down, like I've done this before uh, where I've broken down single movements into really const- like small parts, but I make comparisons, right? So if someone is going to be delivering a powerful blow, I'll describe the wind-up of their arm and then this, the lurch and the motion of the body as the weight comes down through the blow and lands um, with an immense force into the the target who can, you know, is struggling to uh, basically even remain standing as they, you know, try and like hold on, that type of deal, like where you've got the feeling and the associations, the connotations delivery, the figurative language. Um, so perhaps what's making the fight boring is the, is the discursion. Do you think that's, that's a legitimate take there or, or have you read very figurative and also very terrible one-on-one fights? Um, I would say the, the, yeah, the biggest flaw in that kind of writing tends to be the very overemphasis on the technical over and this is somebody who really likes technical stuff like i uh, i read like techno thrillers and stuff like that but like whenever you're grinding things to a halt to describe lots of things and figurative language would definitely assist with this just you can still be creative and interesting about how you're describing technical things if you've got to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a level of efficiency, right? So they say a picture is worth a thousand words. How do you emulate a picture with text? Um, you do it through imagery. What is imagery in literature? It is any reference to the senses. So you use a concrete example of a thing, whether in simile or metaphor, to evoke an image, and then that image takes the place of a sentence or a whole sentence's worth of details because it evokes an experience within the reader, right? That would be the uh, pretentious way that they would describe it in grad school anyway. Uh, But I actually do think that that's very effective. Um, And another thing for the, the personal, other than the discursion problem, um, is knowing what, and I think we'll end on this for the sake of time, but I think this is definitely a, a perhaps the, the point of the conversation I really, really wanted to get to. You mentioned doing research way back with battles, and I think that's absolutely necessary to understand how units of men fought and the psychology behind it and the tactics and the strategy. But also, I really wish people understood um, 
both historical and modern weapons better. I wish they understood historical and modern armor better, um, fighting tactics better. And in terms of in, in terms of science fiction, you've you've got a little in magic for that matter. You got sometimes a little bit more leeway, but not that much more, right? Like, what's your experience with the way down at the personal level that? Uh, we could say the magic or the technology is handled. Do you do you see a lot of, uh, let's say, the see it clear that the author does not understand, like what it actually is like to get punched like in the face and like with a bare hand, um, or like doesn't understand what what it means to get shot or to be stabbed or cut or anything like that. Hey, uh, as far as literary literature with this kind of stuff, I tend to see. Uh, problems with that more in fantasy I think uh, at least from a in science fiction writing typically I uh, mostly see people who at least have a vague understanding of the mechanics of a thing as opposed to like um, a lot of fantasy stuff t tends to like f for example like I'm trying to think of a good example but uh, just like a random hypothetical example is like yeah they're all like it's hard to really like most people who write fantasy don't have a good way of communicating what it's like to get hit with a fireball uh and this is another thing chalked up to video games where it just like takes your hp off and stuff and like a lot of people who are really into anime it's like you just tank the blast and then continue like that's just a thing that happens and you continue fighting i think a good depiction of like i think especially combat magic you should look to like uh contemporary weapons as kind of influence like what if uh f like fire spells hit you like napalm or a flamethrower like that's terrifying that's a good point of reference like look up like descriptions of people getting hit by napalm strikes during vietnam to you like you for your fire magic that might be cool <laughs> but yeah yeah or have their uh have your people pick weapons that make sense i know this is a critique that gets made a lot but you know if they're a soldier they're probably using a pole arm or some type of ranged weapon they might have a sword as a backup depending on what class of soldier they are if they're an individual um like are they wearing armor because probably if they're in their day-to-day -day life no they're not but then what kind of weapons do you carry if you carry weapons at all and why do you carry those weapons right like you know why is it you know a rifle is superior to a handheld firearm in most situations why don't people walk around with rifles because you can't do it conveniently and then hide it right like yeah. you know the same thing with like a sword or a knife like the advantages of a dagger are that you can hide the damn thing and then also you can draw it out and use it very very quickly uh, and it's also convenient uh, i've seen this with like shields and things like that too like people don't know often that sword and buckler was the most popular historical weapon combination ever in all cultures even the ones that are famous for not using uh shields like the japanese well guess what the ancient japanese did they used a sword and a shield and the shield is about buckler size i wonder why that is um but that's something I, I wish you I would see more of is an understanding of why. Because oftentimes it's like, oh, this guy's big and tough, so he uses a hammer. Um, George R. R. Martin is guilty of this, where he describes Robert Baratheon as using uh, a war hammer. 
so heavy that Ned couldn't pick it up. I know one thing you're particularly perturbed about is people just cutting through plate with swords and stuff rather than like using blunt force to try and stuff to try and like uh, hit somebody in the head or like make openings to slide things into. That's yeah, that is bothering fantasy. Yeah, it really bothers me. It's like armor doesn't matter or just gets forgotten at convenient times. That comes from a lot of things, definitely video games, uh, but definitely also film. And even tabletops do a pretty bad job. Um, now, you can, if you know enough about historical combat, you can like make up reasons why or roundabouts how that should work. But it doesn't typically. It's not typically very realistic. You are right, though, that I don't see this anywhere near as often in science fiction as I do in fantasy. Um, do you think that's just because people who write fantasy tend to do more research? Not fantasy, sorry, science fiction. Uh, I think there's an element to that, as well as just like um, the kind of combat that tends to happen in science fiction has a lot more recent allegories that you can work with. Like, it's easy to find accounts of people who have actively like been in gunfights and stuff. And like most science fiction combat tends to take place at range and and most uh, space combat tends to have an allegory through either air combat or naval combat of like the last century, which also ha happens to have a lot of people who are still alive or have at least written about their experiences in that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I I will I will bring up a critique for one on one with uh with firearms again. I think this comes from the second uh, Dresden Files books. Um, authors count the number of shots that your uh, characters are shooting, and if they're shooting more than what their magazine carries or their cylinder carries, uh, make sure to give them some times where I could feasibly think they could reload. Uh, if you've never gone to a range and tried shooting at fast-moving targets rapidly under stress, like, do that first. Um, what else? Uh, understand how rec what recoil is, um, depending on what kind of gun that the characters use. Like, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Murphy, this, like, tiny, like, five-foot-something, like, short woman um, with, a like, a now a full-size Glock isn't, doesn't have that bad of recoil. It's actually pretty... You know, it's a nine shooting nine millimeter. It's 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 pretty handleable, uh, and she is supposed to be a cop, but she is in a narrow hallway with a super werewolf thing, a loop guru, I think, and it's like blitzing down the hallway. So she has about maybe a couple seconds, and this thing is like super mortal. And she, I can't remember, she like takes aim and like says something and then fires and like blows the hair out of her eye and like just this level of nonsense where like you don't have time to be doing that like you you need to be like aiming down the hallway and then shooting and maybe you get off one to two or th maybe three shots if you're pretty you know if you're sure you're a police officer like bam 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 right because the gun has to come down off the recoil but you know, get some experience, <laughs> even yeah. if it's just a little bit. Also, uh, action economy is something people struggle with in individual combat. Uh, or this is especially evident with uh, like one protagonist versus multiple antagonists. Is uh, 
they assume that the protagonist is m capable of doing much more in a shorter span of time to compensate for the fact that they are trying to overcome a lot of individuals. Uh, this is a one arena where it's useful to explore tabletop games, honestly, because you understand you have to keep track of the fact that every round somebody is doing something. <laughs> and I think that, yeah. Uh, yeah. The idea of, your, like, just most of the... Uh, this is this is people are more guilty of this in high action kind of stories where your protagonist is cool and badass. So I kind of understand it, but like, think of to be a better at it. Just think of like how this person manages to be badass at a tactical layer and stuff, rather than just making the enemy incompetent or doing nothing. Yeah, turn it into a proper skirmish, right? Where it's strategy based. Because like even even Musashi doesn't he doesn't just go in and kill a bunch of people. That's not how it works, right? Like it's oh, I need to be in a right position, or else I'm gonna need help, or like something is gonna else is gonna come into play. Don't don't. I mean, if you've ever done any, uh, this is something I'm really happy that I got a chance to do at the place that I trained at. We did multiple sparring. So you had to, at a certain level, you had to practice fighting against two or three, as many as five people. Because after five, it actually doesn't make any difference because the, the sixth person can never actually like engage. There's always someone just running around trying to find a spot to attack you in, um, uh, which is kind of funny. But but yeah, like even in an unarmed situation where you stand a much better chance of handling multiple opponents because with weapons you're kind of screwed because like only one guy has to hit you and you're going to get hit. Uh, but even then, you know, you have to think like if I get grabbed, I'm screwed. Like it doesn't matter if I pummel the guy who grabbed me. It doesn't matter if I put if I if I put the guy in a triangle choke and he passes out, I'm still going to get like boot stomped or curb stomped into oblivion right like um you know you have to be aware of okay if there's multiple opponents you've got this one guy what does he have to do right does he need to put them in a bottleneck does that need, mean he needs to run away does this turn into therefore a chase scene um does he have to try to recruit allies is he what what clever things and you start thinking beyond and he does this cool thing and he attacks this guy and these two guys come in and he takes them both down with a single blow like don't do that um you know, unless you're going to have some like surprise scene where the, the, the badass gets the drop on multiple opponents and, they, you know, because he catches them by surprise. Okay, that might work. But yeah, um, action economy. It's important. All right, Nate, yeah. uh, we've we've dragged this on for, for quite a while. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, any other advice, things to do or not to do when it comes down to combat realism and uh, verisimilitude. There we go. I said it wrong. I think even at the beginning, I guess when I told you, I all said it wrong. Verisimilitude. There we go. But anything um, you want to add? Anything else would probably be outside of the scope of this. Uh, the the topics we've covered. We could probably do multiple episodes on this topic <laughs> if I had the time to make more notes. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we, maybe we will. Maybe we'll. we'll... We'll do something with this in the future. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, Nate, for coming on. Uh, before I send you guys away, I will ask you again to check out really great fight scenes by listening to my novel. Where can you listen to it for free? The whole thing on my website, wildialit.com. It's also on like Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your 
podcast for Google and also Spotify and also YouTube, please. I made it so easy. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Even if you like it or even if you hate it, I don't care. Tell me. Leave a review. Uh, Want Smoke Broken, available for you again at wildoutlet.com. If you're an author, you can hire me. If you want to be an author but don't have the time, then you can hire me too, uh, either via the Wild Out Style Guide or Ghostwriting Services. Uh, and you want to check out all the rest of the episodes of this podcast. Yeah, of this podcast. You can do that again at my website, wildoutlet.com and all the other places, plus SoundCloud. I should have mentioned that before too. All right. Um, Nate, any final words before we say goodbye? No. Have a wonderful day. See you next time. <laughs> yeah, see you guys. Thanks for tuning in.